Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Making Milestones podcast. Today, we have a very special guest joining us, Ansley Bevan from AB Equine Therapy. We go over a number of different topics pertaining to the horse industry and care for horses, be it hoof care, muscular development, and more. And it was just such a great conversation. I'm so excited to share it with you. But before we get started, I just wanted to announce that I've released a bunch of new products in my store, Shop Milestone Ec, EQ, shopmilestoneeq.com. Uh, we have a bunch of new summer products, including a mesh sleeve riding shirt, a turnout your damn horses sweater, and more. So check that out at the store. And also, if you're interested in supporting me on other platforms, the place to do that is on Patreon, patreon.com slash S-D-E-Q-U-U-S. Thank you so much for your support of this podcast. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. So today I have Ansley Bevan from AB Equine Therapy on the podcast, and I'm just going to let her introduce herself and talk a little bit about what she does. So take it away, Ansley. So I'm Ansley Bevan. I am the therapist behind AB Equine Therapy. I'm a licensed massage therapist for humans. I've had that license for going on 11 years now. I'm also certified in equine massage therapy, and I'm certified in equine rehabilitation. And I've also done continuing education courses in equine nutrition, hoof care, um, saddle mechanics, bit fit mechanics, equine behavior, um, and pretty much just a little bit of this and that on everything. So that's kind of my background. Um, Perfect. That's great. Okay. So um, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast to talk to you because I've really resonated with so many of the posts that you've made on your Instagram page. And I also follow your Facebook page as well, but you post so much informational stuff that I love because it covers so many different topics in the horse world that are really hot topics. I guess one of the first things that I'd love to talk to you about is the current barefoot movement and just your thoughts on that as uh, an equine therapist, because I'm sure you see a lot of the other physical traits that go along with hoof pathology as a massage therapist. And I think that for me, like going through the stages that I have with my horse and his barefoot journey one of the things that I found really difficult in actually helping him that I think a lot of equestrians might be able to resonate with is that finding, first of all, a good barrier that was telling me the truth and was actually taking care of his feet was hard to do. Um, and then also on top of that, noticing like what physical signs were actually correlated with his hoof problems rather than something else or like being solely behavioral or whatever. I didn't realize how connected to the rest of the body the hoof was and how much behavioral issues that hoof pathology could influence and I think for me that's one of the hardest things that has been like an obstacle for me in my barefoot journey is finding the necessary help to give me the education that I needed because my experience with farriers before I actually discovered a barefoot trimmer was essentially anytime I voiced a concern, they would make me feel like I was stupid or like that my concern was coming from nowhere. And for a long time, I believed them. And then once we kind of started to go down the barefoot road, I started realizing that a lot of the concerns I had actually held weight. But the problem was that the farriers I was using at the time couldn't actually explain those problems to me. Yeah, I had a similar experience. Um, and I think a lot of it, it just depends kind of 
where you are in the, in the horse world, you know, what kind of training situation you're involved in, what kind of discipline your horse is in location wise, like where you are based. So that's going to dictate obviously what types of equine professionals you have access to. Um, so that was kind of the same case for me. I worked with a couple farriers with, um, horses that I had leased and personal horses and horses that I had worked on. And I just thought to myself, like, okay, well, this, these feet are a problem. So let's have a discussion, but there was never really a solution. It wasn't like, like an open discussion, you know, it's kind of like you as the owner or the rider or the lesser than, because you're not the farrier or the trimmer. Um, it's kind of like, like you were explaining, you don't have that say or opinion doesn't hold any weight, doesn't hold any value. And it wasn't really an open discussion. I will say the last farrier I worked with before I took my own horse barefoot, he was more open um, and he was ready to experiment, to try things. And he did kind of treat me like an equal. And, you know, if I thought keeping shoes on my horse was the right call, I, I would have stayed working with him. But once I transitioned to barefoot, I knew that I had to find a barefoot trimmer just to kind of really get us where we needed to go because the the farrier trim is not the same as a barefoot trim. You know, you're, unless you have one that is trained in both, it's not the same. It's not the same thing. So a farrier who, cause I've had farriers that I've worked with that have taken a horse barefoot and the horse goes lame because they're taking too much of the hoof off. Like they're not, I mean, they're just, they're over trimming for the barefoot trim because they're preparing the hoof for shoe because they're, they're not trained specifically for barefoot trim. So like I said, there are some that are, that are capable of doing both. And, but the majority of the ones that I've encountered, if they're a farrier and they make their living, um, putting shoes on horses, that's kind of what they stick to. Cause if you think about it, a barefoot trim costs what 50 bucks, like they're not, you're not shoeing a horse for 300 a set because they've got, you know, pads and dim and all the corrective things. Um, so that's just kind of the way it is. You know, they're not making money off, off a barefoot trim. I don't, I won't, I don't want to paint it in a light that says, you know, they're anti barefoot because it's not as much money, but it makes you wonder if that's part of it, you know? I've thought the same thing. And I think that part of it too, like, like even with the materials that farriers use for shoes, because the act of like using metal as the interface between a thousand pound animal and the ground, when we have objectively better materials now is something that confuses me. And I think that it also just comes down to like, their education and their craft and like not like a huge percentage of them not wanting to disrupt that tradition in any way. Otherwise, it seems like we should have naturally started moving towards other things. Cause if you look at like saddles and like other forms of horse tack and equipment and how much we've adapted them over the years, there's been a lot more growth to make changes that are for better or better for the horse. Because we used to have these saddles that had like two finger width channels that pinched mm. onto the spine. And now it's becoming way more commonplace to not do that. But I haven't noticed the same thing with shoes. And when you question it, you're often like bullied a lot. Like, like people will come out with like an entire army full of horse people that like, if you even question any aspect of traditional shoeing, cause I did a post where I was like, why are we shoeing without frog support? And that's, I never said anything against shoes. It was just like, we know that the frog needs to make contact with the ground for like the, or it needs to make, be making contact with something for the hoof to function correctly. Like, why aren't we shooting with frog support? And a bunch of people came out on that post and they're like, oh, like, so you're saying any horse can go barefoot, blah, blah, blah. Not all horses can go barefoot and like pulling out all the stops like that. And it's like, whoa, like I never even said anything about transitioning barefoot. This was literally just about 
frog support, which in theory, even with a metal shoe, it's like you can get 3D printed pads now that have frog support. Um, so it, I find like the general industry mindset towards barefoot and just like questioning the current shoeing practices at all kind of feeds into that because it's not even just the farriers it's like anyone who uses a farrier or who has ever had shoes on their horse at any point seems to have motive to defend a lot of practices whether they know a lot about them or not it's it never ceases to amaze me the wild amount of people that are triggered by not only the barefoot discussion, but by anything that goes against traditional standards in the horse industry. It is insane. It's insanity. Like for you to have allegiance to something that it's just regular Joe's making these comments too. It's not like they're a trainer or a farrier themselves. I mean, every now and then, yes, you get one of those, but these are just regular people who are so diehard about something that they know little to, to nothing about. And it's like, you know, my platform is all about education. Yes, I have my views and opinions and what I personally think is more successful or more ethical or better for the horse, but at its very core, all I'm trying to do is encourage people to educate themselves so that they can make the informed decision. So you can choose which content to consume, whether it's mine or someone else's, that's fine, but educate yourself. Like, because if you don't, you're just going to, it's the blind leading the blind. You know what I mean? So, I mean, starting the barefoot journey with my horse was just personal education. I went in and dug through the articles and dug through the practitioners, went through the studies, found accounts that, you know, had successful thoroughbreds going barefoot. And I looked at, okay, what did they do? What are the things they implemented? What educational resources were tied to that? Like, that's what I did. So, I mean, I speak from personal experience with my transition and, you know, since then I've only become stronger about my opinions with it and the success and the forage based diet. And then that has led to other things, you know, um, a lack of ulcers, a better behavior from my horses, um, you know, their coats are better, it, just digestion wise. So it's almost like the barefoot thing has led to other stuff for me and my horse was kind of the catalyst that sort of led me on more of a I don't know what the right word is, like natural, I guess, or granola, whatever you want to call it, this whole kind of journey. And I'm glad, like, I don't, I don't regret it because I think that ultimately these were things that I was trying to accomplish. I just didn't know how, because I was in a very traditional setting. I was in boarding barns where, you know, the horses are primarily stalled, minimal turnout. Um, they're all on grain, minimal amounts of hay. They're all shod. You know, you don't have a barefoot horse. You don't do any of these things. So it's just, it's so traditional and anything against tradition gets such negative feedback. Um, and of course there are the people that are for it and they are, you know, open-minded or they want to learn or they're already on that side of the fence. But I just, is really shocking to me how many people are so anti, like even just now I woke up this morning for the last couple of days, I have a real old, it's from like last month that, um, about some barefoot stuff that's blowing up. And it's like the comments on it are wild. Like, oh, well, you know, you think that every horse can go barefoot and and that's just not the case. You know, it depends on their job. And my uncle has horses in a ranch and you better believe that those horses need shoes if there's rocks around. And I'm like, 
mm, okay, well, like, my horse literally just walked over a bunch of rocks, like, the other day, and I filmed yeah. it. I, like, made a reel about it. So it's just, it's those kinds of things that, you know, I can't get into it with every keyboard warrior, but it's just mind-boggling, you know? People want to say to me, oh, who are you to sit here and educate and tell these people, God forbid these people actually listen to you. But at the same time, like, who are you? In my comments, you have little to no experience, no education. I'm not even pushing an agenda. I just want people to educate themselves so that they can make the informed decision of, hey, metal shoes are not your only option. You know, if you feel that your horse truly can't go barefoot, barefoot, there are composite shoes, you know, gluons, things that allow more movement and mobility in the hoof capsule, more, you know, options in terms of like increasing circulation or not compromising the integrity of the hoof structure. It's just, there are options. And also hoof boots. It's like, why does no one think that a hoof boot is a good option when you can jump in them? I think scoop boots even now has like for eventing or if you're competing on FEI, they have studs. Yeah. Yeah. You can. So it's like, how are you going to sit there and, and, you know, die on this hill? Yeah. shoes or bust and well and they haven't even tried the other materials because like for me i like i i like like i could have been in your comments a few years ago saying these same types of things because i used to do that but like in it like from where i was coming from like i grew up showing on the arabian horse circuit so first of all the shoeing practices there were horrible because a lot of the purposes of shoeing there were to increase the animation of the horse so they'd leave like toes way too long they'd use weighted shoes they'd use like stacks and whatnot So that's what I grew up seeing. So like what I had normalized to me as normal looking feet was like dysfunction everywhere. And in the boarding barns that I was at too, it was virtually like unheard of unless the horse is like a baby or something to have a horse barefoot. Like all the trainers, regardless of whether the horse even started showing any lameness or anything, as soon as the horse started work, they're like, oh, he needs shoes. And it was it wasn't until I actually met like my now barefoot trimmer that I even knew that like composite shoes and rubber shoes were even an option because I I literally had no idea that those options existed. Farriers never brought it up to me, and I don't even know if they knew that themselves. Um, and with the hoof boots thing too, I used to be anti hoof boot because my experience with hoof boots was the older styles of the Cavallo boots before they started updating them. And in those cases, they were more clunky, they were heavier. So for like jumping in, they wouldn't have been a favorite, but like scoop boots, I now compare to it's like, like I used to boot my horse up all around with like splint boots and like open front boots and bell boots every single ride and yeah, or wrap too. him. And like, me too. People are like, oh, like hoof boots are a pain to put on. And it's like, if you boot your horse every ride, it's literally the same thing. It's the exact same thing. Now, instead of putting on tendon boots, I just put on hoof boots and that's it. Um, and even then it's like, I recognize the fact that like my horse Milo, I could probably condition him to the point where he could be comfortable over rocks and trail riding everywhere barefoot, like probably. But the problem is right now. The grass paddock that they're out on, it doesn't have enough rock terrain for him to walk across regularly to callus his feet enough to make it like that. I've added some small river rock areas to try to help with that, but it's not enough. Um, yeah. And he was also starved as a baby, so I have a little bit of a theory that perhaps we might not get the soul depth that we really want long term because... In utero to two years old, he didn't get enough nutrition. So it's perfectly plausible that he's just not going to 
bounce back to what other horses can. But with that said, the rest of my herd is still barefoot and a lot of them are thoroughbreds. Like the horse with the best feet in my herd is an off the track thoroughbred who was shod all around from age, probably 18 months to six years old. Um, and she's doing fantastic and I probably will not need to put boots on her like I like for hacks and stuff she's never needed them and I'd be surprised like other than needing to stud I don't think she's going to end up needing any type of boots but it's it's interesting because I was so closed-minded before because no one really ever took the time to explain things to me and I didn't realize it at the time until I started to like work with my barefoot trimmer she made like a real effort to actually explain why certain dysfunctions appeared why his feet looked the way they did what problems she was seeing and she explained it to me in detail like I wasn't stupid whereas every fair year before that even when I asked questions they'd go about it in a way that would make me feel ashamed of myself would make me feel like I was asking stupid questions or would completely write off any concerns I had as completely unreasonable and just coming from a place of lack of education and then I kind of stopped asking as many questions and I even ran into problems between my farrier and my vet because I, I took a lot of hoof rads of my horse because his feet were one of the core problems and my vet time and time again was like his heels too low his toes too long and then he sustained a minor collateral ligament injury and they were like we need to get the toe back and it was like a like sounding like a broken record they kept repeating it I gave my farrier the x-rays and was really trying to make a difference for my horse, which is what was so frustrating too, because I also got people who were shaming me online because of the condition of his feet, because they could see it. But like the problem that was so frustrating is that I was actually trying, but I was getting yeah, you just by didn't. People. Well, it's like you you exacerbated the options that you knew of at the time. Yeah, like, you obviously didn't know. Okay, like maybe this is a possibility, or this is a route I haven't tried. You're trying to do everything with what you have, and. That's similar to my story. Um, you know, trying the corrective shoeing before I took my horse barefoot. I tried, we did, we did rads and, you know, the angles were a little bit off. We had some negative angles. Um, he had a reoccurring suspensory ligament desmitis in the forehand. And it was just, he's always been funny on that side. He's got like a minor limb deviation. He's got an old fracture through the withers, which has created asymmetry through the shoulder and cervical musculature. So he's never going to be a hundred percent, you know, m- He's not, you know what I mean? There's always going to be a little bit, yeah, a little bit of uh, difference there. But um, the the foot, the left hoof was in general just in more poor health than the right. So, I mean, just nixing all the muscular stuff and going up higher, you know, with asymmetry, just trying to deal with the hoof, like that needed to be dealt with on its own, you know. So we tried some corrective shoeing and I used all the options that I did. Apologies for this part of the podcast. The audio cuts off slightly, but we continued on and still address the same points. It's just going to be a little bit awkward because it's going to cut off at a weird point so sorry about that so before i tried to tackle the the foreleg issue with that suspensory desmitis so before so i did the corrective shoeing on the forehand trying that out before i actually took him barefoot up front i had already taken him barefoot behind to try to solve a different issue it wasn't necessarily like i just wanted my horse to be barefoot i did it because i was trying to solve a problem Mm -hmm. in the hind end we had some proprioception issues, um, especially on softer surfaces where he just, and I got video of it and I showed several vets and several farriers and to no avail, you know, and this is before yeah. I had my rehab, rehab certification. Um, I was just really trying to solve the problem. We, we would do 
you know, exercises. Um, we did everything. I did like a little bit of kinesiology taping, really didn't solve it. Um, anyway, so that's why I ended up taking off the shoes on the hind end. Did help a little bit, but it was more so an experiment, you know? And I was also like, well, shoot, if I can save some money and he doesn't need them, I guess that's the worst. The worst thing that will happen is I won't solve the problem, but I'll save some money and he'll be barefoot behind, whatever. Um, and that was kind of my first experience with transitioning a horse to go barefoot and then, you know, just trying to, to see how that would go. And then obviously taking them off the, um, the front feet, that was a little bit more of an issue. And that was when I really started to dive into the nutrition. And like you were talking about your horse, um, not having a, appropriate access to the terrain to really build those feet up. That was a problem that I ran into before I got, um, the property that I'm at now, my horse was boarded and 24 seven turnout was not an option. They were not turned out with other horses. So, you know, it was like when they weren't turned out, they weren't really doing anything. They just had like the burst of energy. And then he's just there in the dirt and the grass. And it's like, okay, well, we know about track systems. We know, you know, the horse in the wild travels up to X miles a day and over varied terrain, foraging, doing all these things. So that's when I really clicked for me, a light bulb went off and I was like, it's not just about the feet. It's about everything. It's about these traditional norms that we have created for the horse. We've created all these problems that we now have to solve. Like we have behavioral problems. We have hoof problems. We have internal GI problems because of the way we feed. You know, it's like we just, we create all the issues that we have with our horses. So um, that was really a light bulb moment. And that's kind of, I think, when the focus of my business and my mentality and my messaging shifted. And I was like, these are things that people don't know about. They just don't. And so I really kind of tried to switch gears into being just an educational resource because if I had access to someone like me now back then it would have really helped (laughs) would have gotten me me there faster um and I would have done it a lot sooner so I don't regret you know this journey of self-exploration I guess but um so that's kind of why my messaging is the way that it is because I know there are people out there that need the help and they want the help so oh and it's so it's so helpful because it's incredibly frustrating and I think that's partly why you get these really angry commenters who are really clinging to tradition because if you feel like you've been trying to help your horse but you've not been able to like make meaningful change and you're trying your best but then you feel criticized I think people get really defensive because that's definitely what happened to me and like I like I was trying so hard like working with my farrier and my vet but then i hit walls where my fairy would be like oh well then tell your vet to come trim your horse and I was like dude they went to vet they went to eight years of vets like school like they're they're a doctor a veter a veterinarian is a doctor I get not all of them are podiatrists but the lack of respect that and it was not just one farrier that was the other frustrating thing is even when I've talked about it now I've had a lot of people comment and go oh that's just a bad farrier which I think completely misses the problem because if we're seeing these bad farriers at the pinnacle of the sport who are working on like million dollar horses it is not just a bad farrier it's a bad yeah. system and that's that, that yeah, that's like oh it, it was it was that's- frustrating I hear that a lot too. Like when I post pictures on my account, um, of, of hooves and some of them, I mean, are pictures I've taken myself of horses, like, you know, in the barns that I work at and things like that. And others are another thing that I'll do is I'll show like ads, um, for 
like companies advertising products and they're just showcasing like these shit hooves that are terrible, terrible quality health. But in general, people will be like, oh yeah, that's a terrible, that's just a bad figure. That's just a bad trim. Well, listen, I live in between two of the largest like horse show venues in Florida. I'm right in between Ocala and Wellington. So we have farriers that will travel to Ocala and to Wellington to shoe on the show circuit. It's like, it's not a, it's not a bad farrier. It's like you said, it's the, it's not like I live in the middle of nowhere and I have a farrier who's not educated. Like these are multiple farriers working on six figure horses that travel to some of these like huge, highly rated show venues. It's not just a bad farrier. It's like you said, it's, it's the practice in general. Um, it's, that's the yeah. issue. And I live right near Thunderbird too. So it's the same thing. Like we have some very nice horses here and like Thunderbird's like, I think it's the number two rated show park in North America at this point. So we got Thunderbird and then we have Spruce, a province over in Alberta. So like I would say more so than other areas of Canada, we have more sports specific farriers here because there's a way higher concentration of sports specific horses in these areas because of how close we are to national show parks. Um, and I like I think that that's one of the problems where it misses the point where people always want to kind of deflect from the problem by being like, oh, it's just like one bad farrier or one bad person. But then it's like if that were the case and it was just like this handful of bad eggs, it wouldn't be so easy to find bad hoof pathology everywhere. Like it's harder for me now to actually see examples of good, healthy hooves by far than it is to find bad ones. Like I can go on basically any page on the internet, like any level of horse, any sport, and you can find hooves that look messed up as soon as you know what to start looking for. Because what we've been taught to view, or like at least what I was taught to view is like what a healthy hoof looks like was the complete opposite. And I think that's part of what made the transition so hard because for years I'd been told that like, this is what they're supposed to look like. This is normal. This is normal. Just ignore it. This is fine. And then when you start to kind of lift that veil and learn a little bit more, it becomes very, very clear that it's not normal. And I think that's the, the speed bump that is so hard for people to get over because they think that because they've been told the same thing for so long that it must be true. And then anything that contradicts that feels like a lie just because so many people are contributing to this massive industry-wide misconception about horse, like everything horsey. Because like you said, it's not just the hooves. It's like such a multifaceted issue that everything kind of is in this cycle that contributes to the the end goal. And with Milo and like like Milo, my horse, and his barefoot journey, one of the things that was really hard for me to get on board with was giving him the time off that he needed to rest and recuperate because he'd been existing on such unhealthy hooves for so long that it was not just his hooves. It was his whole body. Like he had muscular soreness. He was so tense. He had all these behavioral problems and his body, even as his hooves started to get better was kind of fighting against itself in that, like he had all this lasting damage physically from how sore he was and the level of like, I guess, uh, the level of intensity that he was doing work wise on his feet for that long. So yeah. I was jumping him and stuff. Um, yeah. And well, he it's had the, a he while. Had, sounds like he probably had those really deep rooted compensational movement patterns. You know, the fascia remembers trauma. It holds it. So if you're not, complementing, you know, one rehab with another, let's say a hoof rehab with maybe some like musculoskeletal work, you know, it's going to, it's going to lengthen your recovery process. Exactly. So that can definitely be part of it. And that's kind of, I think we derailed a little bit, but in the beginning yeah. you had asked me about that, you know, the, the effects of hoof dysfunction and how it kind of travels through the rest of the body. And that's one of the reasons 
that it's so important is because when you have dysfunction in the hoof, that changes the whole movement pattern of the limb, which then travels up and it changes the whole musculoskeletal system. So you then have, a, if you have a horse who, you know, let's just say they've got like contracted heels or pain in the, in the caudal portion of the hoof, you know, we've got toe first landings. Okay. That's going to change the shock absorption and that's going to change the tendon ligament health. So if you have, you know, like ligament desmitis due to the movement pattern of the hoof, you now have the limb pattern, the limb, the flight pattern of the limb is now changing. You've got shock absorption issues. You've got potentially a ligament or a disruption there. And then you've got the horse who's protecting that. So then it moves up into the shoulder. Then you've got the horse bracing through the thoracic sling. And then you've got, you know, the cervical muscular musculature starts to tense up and you have someone wondering, well, why can my horse not travel in a relaxed frame? Why can't they collect? Why are they, oh, okay, I know how to fix it. Let me strap some draw rein on so I can get their neck down, you know, and then it's like, maybe you have a kissing spine issue later in the future because that horse doesn't know how to move itself in a biomechanical, mechanically correct way because they don't have accurate musculature because now you've just compounded trying to fix one thing with a Band-Aid solution over and over and over again. So it's like, that's how it happens. And I'm not saying it always starts with the feet, but that's an example. If it were to start with the feet, how it kind of moves and travels. And I mean, I've seen it and not just my own horse, but multiple client horses, a lot of horses that I work on, you know, I'll be the one to point out a problem in the hoof and I'll say, hey, listen, this foot is growing very upright and we've got this hoof here, you know, you're starting to get some frog atrophy, maybe bring that up with the farrier. And then I have the the owner of the trainer say, you know what, that makes sense because the horse has actually been, you know, having trouble getting this lead and they're favoring this left shoulder. And I'm like, well, go have that conversation. You know, it's kind of the balance of where to insert yourself, but I can't tell you how many times I've shown up and I've been the one to say it. And it's like, that's a problem because that's not, I mean, I'll do it. I'm happy to do it, but it's, I'm not the farrier. That's not my job. You know, that's your job. Why are, why are you not, you know, saying that, Hey, we've got a problem here. Maybe we should do some radiographs. Maybe we should think of a, of another system or I don't know what it is. And I try not to be too, like, I'm not trying to shit talk the farriers. I'm really not, but I, I am at a loss as to why the pattern continues this way. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't have an answer. And it's so frustrating because I think like a huge, like, and it would be hard to say until we actually have the sample sizes to say this, but I have a, a really good sneaking suspicion that a huge portion of the soundness issues we see in horses are directly related to hoof issues. Um, Mm -hmm. like I, I also used to gallop race horses and one of the things that was really eye opening for me in my barefoot journey is I did an online webinar with a barefoot trimmer and she was talking about how a lot of horses are shod at like two or even younger and they're still growing. Like their coffin bone is not done developing. And then you've effectively strapped a metal brace to their foot that doesn't allow it to grow. And she's talking about the thoroughbred race horses and how many of them have like stunted growth in their feet because of this. And we all know that like thoroughbreds notoriously are labeled as having bad feet because of the breed, but and and I mean, I'm, breeding and genetics can play a role, but I, like since I've rehabbed so many thoroughbreds barefoot at this point, I'm more inclined to believe that the hoof issues of thoroughbreds are actually related to environmental factors that come with being bred for racing, um, like not being turned out enough, being shod super early, because a lot of them are shod 
when they go to the yearling auctions. Like they're shod at a year old or sometimes even less than a year old just so that they can have two front shoes on sometimes all around for the auction. And then they go into training and they always have shoes. Um, for the most part, other than in the off season, maybe. And then they're also fed extremely high starch diets. So I think that it's kind of an issue that is created within the industry. And then unfortunately, when people get these horses, they usually come back super hoof sore and with bad feet. And then they think that they need shoes to address these problems because they're not actually looking at the root causes. But that was really eye opening for me because I was like, wow, like we're shooting horses in the foot, like literally um, with how we handle them from like before they're even an adult like they're like they're toddlers still and we're effectively destroying their ability for future soundness right at the beginnings of their career um and and it's frustrating because so much money goes into studies for sport horse specific stuff when it's like to the benefit of the people at the top of the industry but yeah i notice barefoot studies and stuff get buried or they don't get the same level of press or there's just less of them because there's not as many sponsors wanting to make them happen um, cause they would rock the boat too much. And I think that if we had more context to actually like prove to people like, Hey, like these are the factors that are contributing to a lot of the problems we see with horses. I think we'd start to see a way bigger shift, but there's so many roadblocks in place to try to prevent that from happening. Yeah. The, the research is definitely, you know, I've talked to a couple of different, um, I don't know what the word is, like people who, who rock the boat <laughs> in the industry, um, so about like different types of research and stuff that we would love to do, but we just don't have funding or like we don't have the means to do it. You know, we don't have a lab. We're not UC Davis. We don't have like these, you know, facilities set up to be able to do it. But like when it comes to saddle fit, um, you know, hoof dysfunction, movement, correct biomechanics, training aids, all of that, it would be really, really neat to kind of you know, do some of the things that I would love to do and like get answers for and, and shed light on some of the stuff that maybe it doesn't have enough peer reviewed research or done on it. Because like you said, a lot of times it's just something that benefits an upper level rider or a brand or, or whatever it is, you know? Yeah, it would be nice to see more stuff go into that, but it's so, yeah, it's so expensive. Like I, I was thinking too, like, even if I just had the funds to start x-raying horses all the time and try to like, like special yeah. horses with soundness issues to prove stuff like that, but it's so expensive. And I, I think a shift is coming because there's a lot more people getting interested in the science-based stuff, but there's so much pushback just because the people who have the most quote unquote experience at the upper levels and like the most amount of press typically are not the ones that are pushing for the most change in the horse world. Like it's, it's very uncommon to the point where like when I see an upper level rider promoting barefoot or turning out their horses 24 seven or social turnout. It's a pleasant surprise and it really shouldn't be that way because it should be the norm. But like, like I, I, there, there's far fewer riders who seem to be doing it the correct way at the upper level. And it's not even to bash the ones that aren't because I don't think they're doing it in a malicious way at all. Um, but it's sad to see that like the correct ways are less commonly exemplified by people at the top than they should be. And to kind of lead into this next topic, I guess would be that there's this wonderful post you did on your Instagram about um event horses, like five-star event horses and looking at their muscular um development in the jog that I found really interesting because um in saddle fit courses that I've done and just like through talking to brands like Schleisa Saddlery and whatnot, like one of the biggest things that they noticed for poor saddle fit is like the hollowing out behind the scapula. And that was one of the things you talked about in the jog 
uh, videos and photos that I found particularly interesting because we were looking at horses who are in arguably one of the most strenuous disciplines out there um, that weren't well-developed muscularly. So I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. So, uh, and I, again, I, I try to disclaimer everything with like, I'm not trying to to be super negative about one discipline or one profession versus another. <laughs> so please don't take it that way. But um, yes, it's very common in the eventing jogs to find horses with poor um, muscular development, which is mind blowing considering the rigorous nature of that discipline and all of the things that the horse has to do. You know, they have to do the stadium round. So they're doing show jumping. They have to compete in dressage and then, they have to do the cross country. So, I mean, that's, that's crazy. Like they're essentially what, what are triathlon participants sort of, I guess you can compare it to, but um, ultimately I think what it comes down to with the poor muscular development with these horses, a lot of the defense that you hear is, Oh, well, the horse is winning. You know, this is an upper level horse is the five-star horse. Um, You know, this horse competed in the Olympics, blah, blah, blah. That doesn't change the nature of the physical state. So at the end of the day, this is a horse who um, a lot of, a lot of what they're doing on a cross country course is adrenaline based, right? I mean, this is a horse that you've potentially trained to. I think, I think you might have actually posted a video one time of a horse who literally jumped like directly into a wall, knowing that it couldn't make it, but it did it anyway. That goes against all the laws of nature. Oh, yeah. Like that, that is a horse that has been trained probably out of like, fear-based repetition or pain to do something because a fight or flight animal doesn't do that. I mean, unless they've got some screws loose, I guess, but that's just not a natural thing to do. So anyways, my, I'm kind of derailing a little bit, but when the horse doesn't have the adequate musculature to support what it's doing, A, you have a horse who has like a rotational fall or, you know, they get flagged on the course because they're too tired and the rider doesn't pull them up. The, the judge does, right. They're like, Hey, like we're flagging you. I don't know if you've been keeping up with the badminton horse trials, but but a couple like there's riders who like Olympic level riders who have just kept pushing the horse and they're like, you're out, you're done. Stop. Like the horse is clearly struggling. You know what I mean? So, I mean, these are horses that my point is the musculature looks that way because and it's not a defense to say oh well they'll st- they're still doing the job they're not though they're exhausted a lot of their quote unquote job is coming from the adrenaline and the yeah. the fear response the fight or flight response you know that horse has been conditioned to do this thing i mean it's like when you get an off the track thoroughbred a lot of times it takes a really long time to get that horse to not just run away with you every time you ask it to canter i mean i couldn't even like get up in a half seat, like even now, sometimes when I ask my horse to canter, if I get up in a half seat, he's gone because that muscle memory is still there. That training is still there. Even if he was fit fit or not fit, he would still do that. So when you see that this, the musculature is compromised in that way, it's like this horse, it's not, it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when the injury is going to occur, when they're going to fail at that fence, when they're going to get the career ending injury, when something like that is going to happen, when you're going to discover the kissing spine, maybe it's already there when you're going to actually say, Hey, I think this behavior is pain related because a lot of them do. I mean, you see them at the, 
and they go to the, the, it's not really a box, but you know, before they take yeah. off, it's like these horses have such levels of anxiety. It's like, it's crazy. And people um, call it excitement. <laughs> Oh, they love their job. Oh, my favorite. My favorite is, you know, they'll post a big picture of the horse leaping over this astronomical thing or like kind of just off of like a big ditch or whatever it is. A horse would do anything for the rider. Okay. Okay. All right. Is that what, is that what we're calling it now? This horse would do anything? No, absolutely not. You know, that horse was trained to do that with not positive reinforcement. Oh, exactly. It's like they don't have a choice. So you can't like, unless they have the choice to say, no, you can't really claim an animal would do anything for the rider. If there's never been an option to say no. Um, And that's something that's really hard for horse people to unpack. Yeah. And I think a lot of this, um, a lot of what you were talking about, um, the specific musculature a lot of times in the jog will be through that thoracic portion and through the lumbar. So you'll have a really poor formed trapezius muscle and even the cervical, like the cervical is severely lacking a lot of times. There's just not a lot of cervical musculature um, through the saddle support area as well. And I get it for the eventers to be a little bit more lean, like fine, I'll give you some leeway there. But there are also upper level event horses who are not that lean who have adequate musculature and look a little bit beefier and are getting the job done. And I guarantee you they're more comfortable than the ones who are out here looking like, like we should say, quote unquote, a marathon runner. Yeah. So, um, but a lot of times I think that it is saddle fit. I think it is dysfunction in the feet that contributes to it because you can see through the jogs, like the majority have toe first landing. So there's hook dysfunction there, which is traveling up the limb. And I believe it leads to a lot of bracing through the thoracic sling, which directly affects the cervical musculature development as well. Um, but I think a lot of it too is saddle fit and, and training because I've seen some upper level riders that have won larger competitions and I've kind of followed them on, on Instagram and stuff like that. Um, and they'll post clips of training, you know, jumping and draw reins and, uh, and stuff like that. And it's like, okay, well that makes sense why your horse is developed the way that it is, you know, and I'll take still shots and kind of point out, okay, well you can see this and this and this, like, and then I, sure enough, I go and I see some of those training videos. I'm like, well, that makes sense. Cause you're not, you're not training in a biomechanically correct or sustainable way. So yeah, and like one of the things that people will say is like, oh, if you use draw reins correctly, they're not detrimental. And I like I used to be one of those people, but then I kind of clued in and I was like, you know, if you're going to the gym with a personal trainer, they're not going to put you in equipment that forces you to do certain positions and stretches for a, an amount of time that they, the trainer, decide, well, you can't say anything. Because like the horses, and in draw reins especially, as someone who used to ride in them extensively, you cannot feel when the horse is either leaning on them completely or when they start to be really exhausted and they can no longer carry that position comfortably because of the nature of like how that pulley system works. You can't feel it. Um And, and it's a shame that so many people believe that there's like a correct way to use them that somehow undoes the damage mm-hmm. that's like forcing a position like that. Yeah, I mean... It's definitely, I mean, essentially, if you have the horse resisting the draw rein, they are bracing through the back and they're not, I know how people like to use the term working over the back, whatever that means. Let's just assume that that means engaging 
the the lumbar musculature because I don't know working working over the back to me is just not like a anatomically correct term but let's say that what they mean by that is engaging the back musculature if the horse is pulling against the draw reins you are not engaging the back the back musculature you are you are essentially creating pressure points you're creating like a like a lever system almost, right? So the horse is pulling against it and that point of tension is either going to be like at the pole or at the withers or depending like where your weight is as a rider and things like that. You know what I mean? So there, there is no working over the back, engaging the back musculature if you have a horse that is resisting against a training aid in that nature. Even not, even not just a draw rein, like a neck stretcher of some short of some sort or like you know the rain right that goes oh my god i hate those chest to the to directly to the bit i'm like okay all right it's so so dangerous so like i'd like jumping in them too i'm just like oh my god like i just imagine a leg getting caught over like even without how restrictive they are to the horse i'm like that's not safe um and it's such a shame because a lot of the stuff that's the most damaging to the horses i also think contributes to rider injury too because like a lot of the behavioral problems or like falls and accidents that we see we we frame it as if they aren't avoidable and if it's a part of riding but like and they might not always be avoidable but i think that the frequency of occurrence that we see these things happening in is avoidable like it doesn't need to happen as often as it does and it's it's so frustrating to watch because there's so many promising, talented young horses and riders that end up having their careers cut short over things that shouldn't be happening. Because if we were doing things better, it it wouldn't happen. Yeah, I saw an article. Um, what is it? One of the horses at the badminton horse trials, you know, was euthanized. I think it was a Contargo or something like that um, was the horse. And. I guess I had a fall. I don't know. I don't want to misinform because I don't have the, the the video or anything like that. But I guess they went in to do surgery and found it was too extensive and ended up euthanizing the horse. Well, a lot of the comments on the article is like, oh, this headline is misleading because what people don't understand is, you know, this is one of the safest courses to date. You know, they've got the frangible pen system, blah, 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 blah. It's like, okay, but at the end of the day, the extent of what you're asking these horses to do is is ridiculous the fact that you have to have riders being flagged because they don't sense the point of exhaustion that their horse is at i mean it puts everybody in danger so despite whether it's the safest course or not or you i mean that's great that the fringeable pin system exists and that technology is there that's amazing but i mean it's really like where do you draw that line in the sand and it's hard because i don't want like the eventers to come for me but at the same time i have a really difficult time getting on board with asking the horse to do some of those things at the upper level, especially given their the musculature and just the state of the horses during these jogs and, and the tack and things. Like if you really kind of zoom into some of these pictures, sometimes you can see like the lack of wither clearance on these saddles or, you know, a really good account. I don't know if you follow saddle fitting. I think it's like U.S. Amanda Anderson. Oh, yeah. Oh my God. She's like, she's great. And she's really good at pointing those things out and kind of showing you like a little bit of of what I do as well. You know, like you have to be smarter than the marketing and the manufacturing and you can't just do these things and follow suit because the big riders are doing it. I mean, look at, look at the ads on, you know, whatever it is, Voltaire or 
you know, the, the ads for Steuben and the ads for CWD, like look at the differences, you know, what, what are, what are these saddles broadcasting? Like, what is their mission statement? What are the pictures on the website look like? Are those actually saddles that are fitting the horses? Cause she's been very good about pointing out the ones that don't. And they're like on the homepage of, of the saddle website with like no weather clearance here, buy our saddles, you know? So it's, it's stuff like that. I mean, I just, I'm, I'm not sure what happens in the upper levels, like as a, a big name writer, obviously, because I'm not there, but it does make you wonder. I mean, do these, do they, do they think the saddle fits or do they just not care? Or do, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I have no idea. I think there's a lot of money involved in marketing and paying riders <laughs> to market certain products and certain companies, I would say, seem to lean way more heavily on getting really prominent riders in the sport to ride in their saddles and blasting that as their primary marketing scheme to try to be like, oh, look, so-and-so rides an RTAC, so you should buy it too. And then maybe lean less heavily on like the actual saddle being well fitted or anatomically correct to the horse. Um, cause so much, like so much of what we do in the horse world is so status based. Like even just a lot of people's defenses against wanting to make meaningful change in the industry come back to like, these are what these upper level riders are doing. Or like you don't ride at that level. So you can't judge. It all comes down to status where you need to be well-known enough and respected enough on a competitive scale to have an opinion that people view as valuable, which is really sad because it cancels out a lot of the most valuable and unbiased opinions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that if there's anything kind of this whole like horse journey has taught me, it's just, I, I've always kind of been the bleeding heart, right? Like I've always sort of felt very sensitive um, when I saw things that were going on at the barn when I was younger, but I just didn't understand it or I didn't know like, okay, well, this is just how things are done. I guess, you know, I, I never wanted to carry a crop. I never wanted to carry a whip. I never, I didn't felt weird about wearing spurs. I always did. It always went against just internally, like how I felt. Um, but I couldn't place that, you know, until I was older and I kind of thought, okay, so it does kind of feel like some of these things are really misused and, and don't really have a place in our industry, but, um, it's just the efficacy of it. Like I really, that is, that is where my passions lie. I just want to educate everyone so that they can make these decisions for themselves. And they, and they know that they don't just have to do something because it's tradition, because the big riders doing it, because your trainer said to do it, because everyone at your barn does it. Um, cause I've been in that world. I've been in that cycle and I understand it. And it's not a great place to be sometimes when you're trying to, to, to figure things out as an equestrian. And if, when you're trying to figure things out for your horse, um, it's like we talked about with the whole barefoot thing. You don't know what you don't know. And sometimes the answer to your problem is not in a space where you are. It's not in the traditional setting. So, yeah, that's a really great way of putting it. And it's sad because, like, I think that a lot of horse people don't necessarily realize how they're, the environment they choose to be in, how much it's damaging to their mental health. Because that's one of the things I noticed for myself, too, is when I started making all these changes for my horses that – are undoubtedly healthier for the horses. It also really helped me. Like I didn't realize how much of a mental health toll it was taking on me to exist in the environments that I was in and to prioritize the things that I was just because it was stuff that became second nature to me because it was what I was taught to do. Like all of my instructors 
that I had growing up really prioritized riding all the time. There is very little emphasis on groundwork and doing stuff just to exist and hang out with your horse. The priority was always riding. And then even though like when I got into horses, I would have just been delighted to even just be in the same space as them, even if I wasn't riding them, like even just inhaling the same air as them would have made me happy. But over time, I started to value like jumping bigger jumps, going to shows, riding all the time, riding out the bucks and like looking cool when you muscle a horse around. And those actually weren't representative of what I viewed to be important going into the horse world. It was a change that was facilitated by the attitudes of other people. And then I kind of felt the need to like assimilate into that environment because when I did try to be soft or like when I did say I wasn't comfortable with something or if I didn't want to hit my horse with the whip trainers would then kind of turn the training onto me and would pressure me using aversives to make me do what they wanted me to do and then I learned to stop questioning things and that Mm -hmm. was such an unhealthy place to be too because then I was just internalizing all these feelings that I had and I never got to speak out and share how I was feeling. Yeah, it's like they're they're teaching you not to have a mind of your own, which again brings us back to the whole me pushing education. I know because I've been there. I've been in that place where it's like you feel like you can't say something or you need to stop thinking for yourself because why are you the squeaky wheel when everybody else in the lesson is doing this and you're the only one not doing it? Um, and I can kind of, you know, that whole mindset where you're saying when you were younger, you just wanted to be in the vicinity of the horse. And that was me too. And as time went on, it was like the priority became jumping. The priority became lessons. It became the the saddle pad that matched my polo wraps at my lesson. It became my, you know, pastel sun shirt that matched my belt. And, you know, I have to have the boots because everybody else does. And why don't I own a Sam shield? Like it became all of those things. And I will just truthfully, like being very vulnerable here, I only came back to this place that I'm in now a few years ago because my horse had soundness issues and it forced me to stop what I was doing. Like the horse was not going to jump at that time. Like he was in rehab, he was in recovery. And then the injury came back and I was like, what is going on here? So it forced me to just put all my desires on the back burner. I was like, I don't even know if this horse is going to be truly sound again after finding all these like anomalies anatomically with him. So it really brought me back to this point of like, okay, I need to focus on him and getting him right. And in that process, I learned a lot and in general about his personality. So like there was always a level of anxiety riding him, which I didn't really pick up on at the time. I just kind of dealt with it. Like you said, internalized it. Right. But after like going through that rehab with him and like sitting outside and just being with him and going through like some of the groundwork and and getting back to those things, I realized, okay, it is very important to not be on their backs all the time. And this was like prior to me getting my rehab certification and really going in depth with kissing spine stuff and X, Y, Z. So like there was a lot of learning that happened over that period of time, but you know, people don't like to hear, Hey, you need to stop riding. Like they don't like to hear it. I didn't, I didn't want to hear it. I mean, it was very difficult for me, but, but what I can say is getting to the other side of that and being somebody who learns your horse from a different level. Like there's just so much more there. It's not just about the riding. Like I always wanted this super horse whisperer connection with my animal. I always wanted that, 
but I never had it until I took the time to get to know him. And I realized, you know, how important working with them was discovering positive reinforcement. All of that changed the game for me. Now I know my horse. There's no anxiety with my horse. Now I will get on that horse in a bitless bridle and a bareback pad and go down the street because like, I trust him. I'm, I'm there. I know it. Like I know him. And I never would have done that before. It was so, it's just, it's an, it's been an interesting journey. And like, I guess my point was, it's not all about the riding and nobody wants to hear that, especially, you know, a super competitive rider. But at the end of the day, I don't make the rules, but that's just how it is. Like until you can digest that, it's going to be very difficult. If you have a horse that is not a hundred percent sound and you're trying to work through a rehab or something like that, it's going to be a lot more difficult for you. If you don't understand that you need to not prioritize the riding. Part. Yeah. That resonates with me so much. Cause I'd say my, situation was similar where I had to like give my horse the time off to actually make the changes I wanted because prior to that I was just slapping a band-aid on all the problems and then having them perpetually reoccur so I resonate with that a lot because it taught me how to appreciate him more and it also improved like the bond that we had and how we understood each other because I wasn't listening to him before that like it was a one-sided communication where I was expecting him to always listen to me but I wasn't listening to him and what I think so important about this discussion is that, like, if people did value their horses past the riding, we would see so much less wastage of horses where they're just being pawned off as soon as they're no, no longer useful to ride. Like, if people got more joy from their horses that wasn't specifically related to sport, we wouldn't see horses that are broken or, like, hitting their, le- like, like or, like, that 27-year-old lesson horse who has so, as long as they can be a lesson horse they have a home but then as soon as they're no longer useful it's like free to good home and people are just discarding their horses as long as they aren't rideable anymore which is really sad and i think that's a huge issue in the industry as well that i think is so important to talk about because at the end of the day like all horse people will say we're in this sport for the horse and the love of the horse but if you look at it in practice it doesn't actually add up to being the case because if it is actually just about the horse if you can't ride your horse, the horse should still have value. Like it shouldn't be where the horse suddenly has no value to you and you don't want them in your life anymore when they don't become rideable. And I understand for a lot of people, the sport is important and I'm not negating that, but I think that people do need to honestly look at the situation and go, do I love the sport or the horse more? Because generally speaking, if the horse is discardable, as soon as you cannot use it for the sport, it should be pretty easy to look at that and go, the love for the sport is greater for than the horse right now. And if more people would admit that, at least then we could acknowledge the problem and have a more open discussion. But there's a lot of pushback against that. And I actually wanted to bring it back to the comment that you said about the horse, um, the event horse who jumped into that seven foot fence um, when the rider's rein broke because he just went where he was pointed. And I think that a lot of the riders we see growing up are trained in a similar way where they literally just go wherever their instructor points them and they don't question anything. And when you take their training wheels off and they're put in situations that their instructor says are safe or tells them to do, they'll inevitably be put in dangerous situations or do things that are harmful to them or their horse simply because they've learned to never question anything and they just do what they're told to a fault. And it's the lack of like critical thinking and independent thinking and, I th- that's why I appreciate what you do so much, too, because it's providing people with information that allows them to go look at a situation and go like, OK, like, does my horse need shoes? Does he need a saddle fit? And kind of like go through their little checklist and decide what is the best move for their horse, because it's not about doing everything like 
the same way as you or I. It's about looking at the situation and choosing what's best for the horse and yourself in that situation, which I think is so hard for people to do because riding is just such a priority right now. And like you said, like there's a lot of rehab stuff and stuff for like long-term physical change in horses that you cannot properly accomplish if you're trying to ride them the whole time because they're having to pack weight while trying to strengthen areas of their body that are broken or struggling. And and a lot of times, a lot of times they're having to actually relearn how to move properly because the improper movement contributed to the injury in the first place. So it's like, you can't do that with a rider. Yeah, exactly. And it's a shame because I, I noticed for myself too, that like when I gave Milo the time off he needed, I actually got a lot of hate for it where people were like, oh, like you're not even jumping anymore. All you do is just feed your horse cookies and do nothing. And they try to like make me feel ashamed of the fact that I've given my horse time to heal his body in the way that he needed. And that also plays into this whole issue because it's like people are placing so much value and like how the value system of how they value these riders and these horsemen off of how much they're riding to what level they're riding, how hard they're riding. Even if in that context, like for me to meet the standards they've set for me, I'd have to be harming my horse. And it's interesting to me because we should be looking at things through the lens of like, Yes, being able to prove that you can ride at a certain level has value and it can show like what you're capable of doing. But if a rider is doing that at the expense of their horse, regardless of how well they can ride, the fact that they're putting their horse's life on the line to do it should cancel out anything that they do in the show ring. And it's just really sad because I see a lot of young riders who are desperate to prove themselves. And I think that those pressures make people make bad decisions and accidentally ride their horse to the point of breaking um, when they otherwise might not do that if the peer pressure wasn't so strong to make them feel like the only way that they're valued as a horse person is if they kept doing that. Yeah. And I mean, personally, like from my experience, you know, it's just people calling you soft, like you're too soft. You're too soft of a rider. Your hands are too soft. Your leg is too soft. You're not being demanding enough when you're asking them something like not letting him refuse, you know, all of these things. And it's like, these are things that I prided myself on. I was like, well, I I do have really soft hands. I am a soft rider. And it was like, over time, I just was criticized for it and asked to be harder and harder and harder. And then it was like, I didn't even know myself anymore. I'm like, this isn't even fun. I'm just stressed out because I'm riding in a way that I don't want to. My heart hurts at the end of it because I'm sad. Like, I feel like I've hurt my horse and, and you miss the signs. Like there's a reason you were having to ask me to be harder and to, to bid up and to add a crop and do these things because the horse was injured. There was a behavioral sign there that we missed because I didn't know any better. The trainer didn't know or didn't care. You know what I mean? So it's like, these are the things that, that we need to be looking for. I think the, the behavioral signs, especially related to pain, get missed so often. And if we just were a little bit more attuned to that, we could go so far. And that's something that I teach in my courses, you know, recognizing and identifying pain. Even if you don't want to treat your horse yourself, at least learn how to recognize and identify the pain so that you can then make the next, like, make the correct steps afterwards. You know what I mean? On on what you're going to do with that information. Oh, for sure. And like, I think that it's a shame that like, horse behavior in general is not really taught to a lot of young riders like not accurately so because like for me when I was taught how to ride and like train 
never once, like until I started my equine sciences education, did I ever at any point have an instructor actually explain to me like what operant conditioning was and how it worked or what certain horse behaviors meant. And I even had a lot of instructors who would look at horses who were like weaving or cribbing and like, they would just be like, oh, he's just playing. And it's really like, I think people underestimate how damaging it is to be told that when you're young and impressionable and new to riding and how long it actually sticks with people. Because I didn't realize the damage that it did until I started having to unpack all that information. And it's so much harder to be taught things the wrong way and hold on to those beliefs for however many years and then have your whole world rocked when you learn the like what the correct way is. Because then you either are faced with the decision of having to accept that information and recognize the fact that you have gone about things in the wrong way for so many years or to comfort yourself, you deny it and you decide that it's not accurate. And either way, it's just not a comfortable place to be. And I think for people like you and me, like that's where a lot of people don't necessarily realize like the struggle of being caught between those two worlds and having to like make the choice of what direction you're going to go. And they take it as like talking about these things as like some sort of weird superiority complex where we're doing it because we're like, oh, we're so much better than you when really it's like, no, like most of us wish that we'd been able to make that change earlier and hadn't yeah. had as much of a struggle. And that's why the information's being put out because we want to help other people make the change earlier than we were able to. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember multiple rides that I had on my horse where, you know, he, the saddle pad was soaked, you know, and I was exhausted and he was exhausted, but it was like, I needed him to do what I asked him to do because that's the way that it was supposed to be. And he was being bad. And, you know, we, I just mentally, he was going to, he was going to continue to bully me if I didn't bully him back and I wasn't the winner, you know, like I can't tell you how many trainers I've worked with that kind of had that mentality and, and pushed that onto me. And it's, it's like, it never felt right, but I didn't know what else to do. And, and it was frustrating experience because, you know, I wanted to, to have the nice, calm, docile, nice moving horse, just like everybody else did. But that wasn't, that's not the hand I was dealt. You know, my horse was dealing with, with issues and injuries and deep rooted things that I didn't know about at the time. And it was like, it's just hard. It's hard when you, you don't know where to turn, you don't have the help and it's, you have conflicting emotions. I mean, it's hard for me now, like kind of this whole journey that I've been on and kind of moving into positive reinforcement and maybe moving to a little bit more of a natural um, care system for my animals, like forage based diet, barefoot, 24 seven turnout, all these things, because it's the exact opposite of the majority of my clientele, like I'm working on six figure horses in large show barns that are actively competing in the show circuit. And it's really, really hard. It's almost like I'm live a double life because I'm, you know, if I, if I could influence everyone to kind of, um, you know, pursue the route that I pursued, I would, but that's just not, it's not the priority for a lot of people. So I do my best and I make suggestions where I can. And, you know, if it's somebody that I feel that we're not a good fit, then I obviously won't work with them, but it is hard because like you said, we're kind of stuck, stuck in this, in this middle place where it's hard to, to really choose because you're, you're not, you know, you're shamed for not competing or riding at a certain level, but you're also on this kind of like self-discovery journey or trying to do things right by the horse. So it's almost like, like you said, it's just a conflicting place to be sometimes. 
Yeah, it's a it's an interesting place to be, especially if you come from like a show background or a traditional barn background too, where you were like taught to value all those things. It's really weird. And I think the other hard thing that like less people maybe acknowledge too is like you said, like with clients who do things differently or like friends or colleagues of any sort that do things differently. And there's so much nuance because you can respect what they do as people. You can know that they're good people. You can know that they love their horses, but that still doesn't change the fact that you can also look at like where the information's pointing and like what is and isn't good for horses objectively. And having those different beliefs doesn't mean you're looking at those people and going, Oh, they all suck and they all hate their horses and they're all horse abusers. Um, Cause it, it seems like a lot of people on this top, like when we discuss these hard topics, they take a very black and white stance where it's like, oh, if you think those things, that means you think everyone's abusive. And it's like, no, like, like the way I view the horse world, even with people like, um, at the upper levels who are riding their horses to the point of exhaustion to where they need to be eliminated on course by the ground jury, which is obviously so wrong, but like, I think that most of the people in this industry that are like actively involved with horses do like a part of them does really love the horse and they're in this sport because they love for the love the horses. But like so many of us have had it happen, that love at some point kind of gets misplaced and the priorities become less and less about the horse and more about like chasing human ego and human goals, because that's what we're literally conditioned to do. Like people are conditioned Mm -hmm. and reinforced to be that way. So I view it as like the whole horse world needs reform and there's so much that we could be doing better. That's not happening. And like my end goal would be to see us moving closer and closer towards that. But I also recognize the fact that whether or not people are currently on that path or not, like a lot of them do still love the horses. They're just not where they need to be right now to accept that information um, and use it how they need to, because Like those people and like some of the people who still deny this stuff now, like I used to do the same thing. I didn't just like immediately hear this information and go, oh, I'm going to put my horse on a forage only diet, turn him out 24 seven in a herd and make him go barefoot. That's so awesome. I fought back and I was like, this is stupid. Like all you have are like backyard horses that don't do like pasture puffs. Like you've never worked with show horses or race horses, but like I did all the same things. And if people had looked at me at that point and gone, like, this person is a write-off of a horse person, they're never going to improve, they just hate their horses and are an abuser, it would have done me a disservice because it would have labeled me as always being the person that I was in that moment. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. that's what I'm trying not to do is I want people to understand that, like, it's a learning journey and, like, the vast majority, if not all of the people who want to see improvement in the horse world, at least in some part, likely participated in things that they no longer agree with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think so too. That's part of learning and part of growth. You know, we're not, we don't come out of the womb perfect and all knowing. Um, so, I mean, I definitely think that people, there are a lot of people I think who do come to those conclusions on their own. Like you said, they, you know, I have clients I've worked with who were pretty diehard about things. And if I would have brought up going barefoot to them a year ago, they would have probably fired me. <laughs> but, but now it's like, I've had people come to me and text me, Hey, can I get your trimmer's number? Or, Hey, what, what are you feeding? You know, Hey, stuff like that. Whereas they wouldn't have done that before. So through them trying to solve their horse's problems, they've kind of began this investigative thing on their own, which is great. I applaud that. I encourage that, you know, that's, that's where, that's where growth happens, you know, educating yourself and learning and wanting to know more because you figured out that the traditional way or or whatever you're confined to, it wasn't working. 
So, mm-hmm. and that's, that's innovation. So, I mean, which is key, you know, the world, we don't progress unless we innovate. So I think that that's really important. Yeah. And it's nice to see, like, even just over the last couple of years, how much quicker things have started to move. Cause I feel like, and there still is a lot of pushback, but I feel like even like four or five years ago, there was way more pushback where if like, if you dared to be like, Oh, like, barefoot like everyone viewed all barefooters as like the crazy barefoot people but now we're seeing like the number one in the world in show jumping competing barefoot with an entire string of barefoot horses number number one and number two yeah and it's (laughs) catching fire finally and like that's the type of stuff that people need to see to actually believe that it works because people at that level don't have any incentive to change to that degree if it's not actually successful so I think that's really great to see. And I like, I'm hoping bigger shifts are going to be coming because I think there is a higher degree of awareness. And like, I think a lot of it's a social media. Cause honestly, without social media, I don't think I would have had the changes that I needed to make. Cause I wouldn't have had access to the information that would have allowed me to do that. So I have really high hopes for the younger generation that's always had access to social media like this because growing up when I was in show barns, like, Everything I was told I had to take at face value because unless I like lucked out in finding it in a book that I bought, um, yeah. I wasn't going to see any alternative view. And when you see everyone around you doing the same thing, it feels like everyone in the world is doing that too because everyone in your world is doing that. Um, so it, it's just, it's really nice to see how things are shifting now and the positive changes that are happening and just like the conversation that's happening. Cause I think regardless of whether or not people agree with like people like you or I, like even just them being able to have like an open conversation and take in conflicting information is such a good thing to do because a lot of people grew up having instructors that modeled a their way or the highway mentality where it's like, you can't question and there is no room for discussion because those types of trainers often feel attacked when you question them. And then they, choose to make you feel uncomfortable for asking the question because they feel uncomfortable and then you learn not to ask. And that's kind of the environment that I grew up in too. So I got really scared of like, even in school, it, it translated to there where I stopped asking questions, but now I ask a lot of questions because as soon as I started going into doing my own schooling and stuff, like they encourage you to ask questions in like mm-hmm. post-secondary and stuff. Um, and it's a way safer place to do it, which has been awesome. And um, I really love to see like, yeah, the changes that have been occurring online and just some of the, like amongst all of the other bad stuff. Cause obviously like at the Kentucky Derby last week, seven horses died during Derby week, a horse died at badminton and then like all of those bad things. So there's always still bad news, but I think that there is promising stuff that's in the works. That's going to keep building movement and momentum and hopefully make major shifts. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you. I, I think that there is definitely a little bit more momentum with all of that. Um, I definitely choose to surround myself with it. Like those are the accounts that I follow and things like that. I try to weed out the negative. I mean, I, I have never in my life seen so much negative horsemanship and poor training as I have on TikTok. So I try not to like really yeah. get on that side of things. Oh. I'm just like, holy moly, what is, what am I seeing here? But, um, yeah, I, I think that there is a movement. I think that I think as long as people are open to having the conversations, we can be open minded and civil with each other. Then that's the best thing. Like, I mean, there's no reason to be hostile or to be so black and white about it because um, it's just a discussion. You know, at the end of the day, everyone can can make their own decisions. But as long as we have the information and the education and I mean, do with it 
what you want. Like, I mean, every time I like take a class or continuing education or whatever it is, I take what is meant for me and I leave the rest. You know, you don't have to consume everything a hundred percent and say, okay, well then this is the way I'm going to do it now. Take the pieces that work for you and leave the rest. Like you're able to do that. You're allowed to do that. Yeah. And so. it still results in improvement too. It's like, if you, even if you only take 2% of new information that you get, it's still 2% improvement. If what you were doing before was coming from a less educated perspective. Um, and that's the thing is like, there's so much nuance because like with the whole shoeing thing, like the different types of footings that horses live on can impact what they can do. Like my horses used to live on crusher dust, which created a lot more problems than now that they live on grass in terms of having them stay barefoot and not wear their feet down enough. So there's always like context and nuance to things. But I think that hopefully the more people start to accept scientific research, the more they'll realize like how to work within that nuance and like how to take factual information and make it work in their environment. Um, cause like you said, like if you board and you don't have your horses on your own property, it's very, very limiting with what you can do, even if you know what the right thing to do is. And I think for a lot of people, that's why denial is easier. Cause if you know in your heart what the right thing is, but you can't provide it for your horse, that's also a really difficult place to be. Um, and it's very mentally taxing. So it, it, it's such a multifaceted problem. And like, I, I, like, I hope to see like horse people just give each other more grace and just be open to information, even if they're not necessarily able to apply that information perfectly in their horse's environment, you can still use it to create improvement um, and improve on the situations that you have. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's a learning process. I mean, I was definitely stuck in that space too, you know, where I was having these shifts and I really wanted to make these changes, but I just wasn't in a place where I could do that. You know, I didn't have the opportunity to not board my horse. Like that was just what I was stuck with. So, I mean, you got to work with, with what you have sometimes. Yeah. It's all just about doing the best you can in the situation you're in. And I think that people deserve to be like applauded for that. And I, yeah, this like, thank you so much for coming on here, by the way, it's been really great. Um, and like I said, I've, I've really resonated with a lot of your posts and I think you are making like a big difference. Like even just the fact that you offer like these massage courses and stuff too, so people can learn how to be more self-sufficient, um, for their own horses and learn how to recognize certain issues and like what to, how to address them, I think is so huge. Cause it's just giving them way more tools to be able to help themselves more. And I think that's a huge part of the industry problem is just giving people empowerment to feel like they can better their situation. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's kind of the main driver behind it is, you know, a lot of people, maybe you're in an area where you don't have a body worker or professional, maybe you just can't afford it. Maybe you can't keep your horse on the schedule they need to be kept on. Um, for whatever reason. So that was kind of the driving factor. You know, I had all these people, well, what can I do in between sessions or what can I do on my own? So that was when I developed the helping hand tool. And I was like, there's a need, like people need to know how to do this. Like I, I not gatekeeping this information. Like you deserve to know how to palpate your horse, how to see if there's pain. So it's like every time I was in a, I had a treatment session, you know, I'd be talking to the owners and I'd explain all these things and the responses and I'm showing them how to palpate through the back and all this stuff. I'm like, I'm just going to put it in a course that way everybody can get it because, you know, that's not information that, that you have access to all the time. So um, you know, that's kind of the, the core of the, 
of the courses, the way that came from is just educating and empowering the everyday equestrian to be able to make these decisions for their horse, to be able to identify pain. If you want to treat pain, if you, if you've got a specific thing going on, like you think your horse has a TMJ issue or, you know, tension because of highway dysfunction or whatever, well, now you have something that can maybe help you try to deal with that. So. Yeah, that's so awesome. Yeah, no, I really appreciate having you on here. So thank you so much. And um, is there anything else you want to say before we wrap this up? Um, um, no, I feel good. I um, This was a great chat. So thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you for joining me. And I'd love to have you on again, because I'm sure there's going to be more topics that arise in the industry that are going to be worth talking about. Um, cause there always seems to be something going on, but I do think that, yeah, we are on a path of more positive change and I'm excited to hopefully see where the industry continues to go. And then hopefully as time goes on, we'll have better and better role models, even at the upper levels is what I would love to see. So that's fantastic. Yeah, definitely. Me too. We hopefully. <laughs> Thank you so much.